Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Romano Riquetta, who is Senior Vice President of Participant Services at TIAA CREF, the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association College Retirement Equities Fund. Today we will discuss how his company hopes to provide United States Latinos access to a secure retirement through its Spanish language initiative. Romano has served as Senior Vice President of Participant Services at TIAA CREF since July of 2006. He oversees the company's call center and field consulting group with more than 1,400 employees. From November of 2001 to May of 2006, Romano served as Senior Vice President at J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, where he managed the telephone channel in the retail bank. Prior to joining that company, he was a Senior Manager at Deloitte & Touche LLP, serving as an Operations and Strategy Consultant. Romano, who holds a master's degree from MIT and an MBA from the University of Texas at Austin, is a registered principal and registered representative. Romano, welcome. Elena, buenos dias, and what a great pleasure to be with you and with our listeners. Thank you so much for having us today. Thank you for joining us. We're excited. I think this is a topic that so many people have an interest in and sometimes falls through the cracks because other things take priority. Let's talk a little bit about the basic concept of TIAA CREF before we talk about the Spanish language efforts that your company's embarked on targeting Spanish-dominant Latinos in the United States. What is TIAA CREF? Can you help us in a nutshell understand what that means? Elena, the first thing I usually tell uh, people that do not know the company is that we are for sure Fortune 100. And Elena, let me tell you, the 2010 list of Fortune 100, TIAA Craft is number 90. So we are a big company. And sometimes people don't just realize that fact. Uh, and we are here for one thing. And we're here to serve the not-for-profit sector. The second thing that I tell people is that we as a company, TIAA Craft, are America's largest private retirement system, Elena. And a few things under that, um, second largest provider of retirement dollars just behind Social Security. And this is one factoid that really interest a lot of people. We are the third, number three, largest owner of real estate in the U.S., just behind two other players, the U.S. government and the Catholic Church. So we are, we are big, and we have been around for a while. Uh, we were founded in 1918, and basically to provide retirement income to college faculty. Then later in 1952, we launched the Crest side of the company. And that was basically so that we could expand our investments into equities. Uh, over the years, for sure, our client base has grown, uh, and that includes now university staff and employees at hospitals, any kind of religious organization, K-12, that means from kindergarten to 12th grade, governments, and some other non-for-profit entities. Um, so we are here for uh, a while. We are large. And then people usually ask, well, who do you serve? And there are a couple of numbers that I would love to share with you to answer that particular question. And, you know, three things are important when I refer who we serve. First, I usually say that there are 15,000 institutions that we serve as clients. And then these institutions have about 3.6 
million participants. That's right, 3.6. And you know, Elena, they are clients, but we call them participants because they participate in the retirement plans that we offer. So you will hear from us sometimes use the term clients or sometimes use the term participants. And one very important number, Elena, that I forgot to mention, we manage about $426 billion in assets. Um, So that's just uh, a few things about TIA Craft. I'm still digesting all of that interesting information that you shared with us. $426 billion in assets and a client base of $3.6 million. Correct. Now, if I understood correctly, you serve a finite group of clients and not the general public. Is that right? That's correct. Most of our clients are associated with an institution when it comes to pension, the pension planning that we do. But we are a financial services company, so we also offer services and products to anybody that would like to see what we have to offer. So if you would like to open an IRA, I would encourage everybody to go to the web at www.tiacraft.org and then you can experience some of the products that we provide. Just to make sure that I understand, so the majority of the services that you offer are for those institutional clients that you mentioned relating to teachers and hospital and nonprofit and government and religious employees. But there is a part of your services that is open to the general public, which are specifically IRA accounts? Correct. That's, for instance, one of the products that we could offer. If you want to open an IRA account, we will love to have you. Okay. So within that very large client population that you described a moment ago, that your participants or your clients from the 15,000 institutions, what percentage are Spanish dominant, would you say, Romano? It's such a good question, Elena. And what we have found out is that on average, and the number is growing every day, it's about 5% of our 3.6 million participant base. And what percent... Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I know, go ahead, go ahead. That What percent of your overall client base would you say is Hispanic? Yeah, I'll say, Elena, close to 5%. Five zero. So 5% is what we have seen so far. Um, and, and it's growing, Elena, because as our clients continue to find out about our Hispanic Latino offering, they are beginning to identify themselves because sometimes you wouldn't know it until they pick up the phone and call you. Okay, let me go back a second and see if we can segment the client base a little bit further. When you sure. talk about the U.S. Hispanic consumer we are generally talking about consumers who are English dominant, so that their primary language is English, who right. are bilingual, so that they are capable of speaking or consuming media in either language, English or Spanish, right. or right. who are Spanish dominant, so that their most common, most preferred language to communicate in and to consume media is Spanish. So if we look at your 5% of your client base that you've described as Hispanic, what percentage of that 5% would you say is Spanish dominant? And just as an example, when we look at the overall U.S. Hispanic population of, let's just say, to be conservative, 45 million people, only even by generous standards, only about 20% is Spanish dominant. The majority of the remainder is bicultural or bilingual, and then only another small percentage, 
about 15 to 20 percent is English dominant. So if you look at those numbers in relation to your employees or rather not your employees but your clients, how would you divide your client base in terms of their language and acculturation level? Elena, when we look at the 5% of our participants or clients of the 3.6 million, these are participants that when they are working with us, they prefer to speak either Spanish only or both. And what we find the most is that people actually switch from one to the other. So the 5% encompasses it all. Uh, so sometimes it's pure Spanish when you are meeting with the client, uh, but most times what you find is that people go back and forth. So the 5% has, as a component, all of those people that when they talk to us and when we do business with them and we help them retire, they at some point prefer to have one or two words in Spanish, but there is a lot of switching around as well. So we see a more, Elena, as a cultural fact. Uh, for instance, on the 5%, you have second generations, which are probably people that will do 98% of the conversation in English, but they still have the 2% Spanish, and then the way how they approach retirement is still have kind of a Hispanic flavor. I hope that answered your question. Yes, I think that it did. If I understand correctly, the majority of your participants is... English capable, but they still enjoy having access to information in Spanish to some degree. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And then, Elena, what is also important is the way how they approach financial issues. It has a Hispanic flavor, which is what we have seen, and it's such a terrific thing to be able to understand what that's about. Romano, in terms of your company and its staffing capability, what percentage of your employees at TIA-CREF would you say is Hispanic? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, Elena, I do not know. I'll get back to you on that one in terms of our employees. What I can tell you, Elena, is that the employees of our company that are serving our Hispanic Latinos up in the front lines, we have probably about 200 employees that are working with our Hispanic customers out there. So uh, for sure I know that, you know, they are they're helping our clients. So at least we got 200 that are doing that great job every day talking to our Hispanic Latino customers. And you recently launched a... U.S. Hispanic Initiative, what prompted that? What was the the driver, if you will, that prompted you to have specific efforts to reach out to that part of your customer base? Elena, a couple of things. Number one, we talk to our clients often. Those institutional clients that we spoke about, the 15,000, uh, we are very close partners, and they have told us that it's very important that when we provide the advice that we provide to their employees, that we're able to have the Hispanic capability. So listening to clients was very important. But number two, Elena, is, is we as a company, TIA Aircraft, the, the, the mission to provide retirement services and financial services to all of our clients was a very important component of that because we saw the population growing and we didn't want to wait. Uh, you, you know the numbers in terms of growth. You know, for sure, Hispanics, the fastest growing segment. Uh, so when we saw that, we said it's important that we give the opportunity and the option for our Hispanic Latinos to do business with us in Spanish if they wanted to, and then for us to tr- truly understand how Hispanics different from from some of the other groups that we serve. So those were the two facts that made it happen for us. In looking at the current demographic data, and of course we're all holding our breaths waiting for the census numbers to come out from the latest census. But even before that happens, we know, of course, that the emerging markets in the United States are 
driving our growth right now. And researchers tell us that the growth in the future years is going to continue coming from emerging markets, especially U.S. Hispanics. In, obviously, that's something that you have taken into account in deciding to launch efforts to serve that part of your market. You talked about a Latino style when, when contacting or serving your customers. Is your Latino customer different? Is the profile of your Latino customer different from that of your general market customer? Elena, uh, I can share a few things, and the answer is absolutely yes. Um, let me share with you a few numbers. I, I know you like the numbers that will share some light on, on that. Um, for instance, in October of 2009, uh, the Hispanic Institute and the Americas for Secure Retirement Coalition had a report, and, and the numbers are quite, quite interesting. Let me share a few of them. Number one, 25 of Hispanics are covered by what we call employer-sponsored retirement plans, where both the employee and the employer contribute to that plan. And that compares with about, you know, 42.5% of non-Hispanic whites and 40% of African Americans. So we knew at that point that we were a bit behind when you talk to participation in the plans. Another important fact that when Hispanics reach retirement age, we often find that the savings do not stretch far enough. The third thing that was useful is that on average, we Hispanics spend more than half of our retirement income, that is, when we are retired and you look at, you know, how we're using that income, we spend about 54% on two things, food and housing. While non-Hispanics whites, those retirees that retire, just spend about 11%. And, and you ask yourself, like, why? You know, why, why those differences? And this goes back to the culture. Um, what we also found out because we did research with our own participants and we talked to them before we launched the effort back in May of 2009 and we asked them and we found, Elena, if there is one thing we found that was so unique about all Hispanics is that when we retire we want to have a bigger house so that we can have the children and the grandchildren come in versus when you talk to an Hispanic, they want to have a smaller house. And that's what drives a lot of that. So when we put all the research that we read out there and saw how Latinos, Hispanics were falling a bit behind by the numbers, and when we did our own research, it was just so clear to us that it was like the right thing to do to start focusing on Hispanic Latinos. It's about, you know, it's about family. At the end of the day, it's about family, Elena. And I asked my wife, I, you know, I asked the same thing. I said, honey, when are we going to downsize a bit? And she said, no, we're not going to downsize. We need the house for the children. So that's one big difference, and, and that changes the way how you spend your money on retirement. Did I ask? Did, did I did that answer your question, Elena? Uh, yes, definitely. The the percentage of Latinos that is that is working with a retirement plan of some kind is far behind that of mainstream and African Americans. And what they do with their retirement monies is also significantly different, if I understood correctly. correctly. That you understood correctly. So. What is what is the correct approach, if you will? What is the recommended approach, and what are you? How are you reaching out to these Hispanics to help them understand and embrace the opportunities that might be available to them? Elena, is is so simple. Our approach 
is so simple and it's working so well and it basically says one thing we have to start with education and education in language and education in culture so that's our whole effort began let's talk to our Hispanic Latinos let's educate them about what is a very disciplined way to think about retirement which is what we do as a company so when we talk about education, we say, how are we going to reach our Hispanic Latinos? Uh, back in May of 2009, we said, the first thing we need to do for sure is that we have to ensure that when you call us and anybody that is a plan participant or not can call TIA Craft at, let me give you the number, Elena, just in case, it's one 800 again, one 800 a four two 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 five two. When you pick option nine, you will be able to listen to our messages in Spanish. So that was the first thing, Lena. Let's ensure that our clients can call. Uh, they can talk to a financial representative that is able to speak Spanish and to understand their needs. But then, as you know, when we work with our institutions, a lot of our, our field consultants will do, these are consultants that actually go and visit the universities and the hospitals. So they go out there to have all these advice sessions when we're advice participants. So we saw that it was also important that our field consultants were able to have a great, great meeting in Spanish and talking to our participants about their needs. So we also have seminars on campus, for instance, where we have our consultants speaking with our participants in Spanish. And then, Elena, our website, I don't know if you have seen it, if you go to www org. there is right there in the bottom left one link to go to our Spanish site which is basically geared toward education and I would encourage all the listeners to this podcast even if you are not a client of US, of our company TIA Craft to see what is up there because there is a lot of education that is important. There is one tab I have to say that I'm always very, very excited to share when you go into our Espanol, as I call it, site that talks about ayuda y recursos. It's a very disciplined way to help clients think about retirement. And it talks about how do you think about retirement at the beginning, if you are just beginning work, and what type of questions do you ask? How much money would you need to save every year to reach a goal? But if you are somebody that is kind of in the middle, what we call medio de la vida laboral, we also help participants understand what questions to ask, or if you are ready to retire. So I would encourage your listeners, even if you are not a client of TIA Craft, to please go to that uh, particular site because it is about education. And again, it's www.tiaa-craft.org, Espanol. So that's, that's the journey that we are on. Now, in terms of the website, Romano, what percent of the information that is in the English language website would you say is available in the Spanish language section, or is the Spanish language section completely separate and independent from the content that you have in English? Well, the, it's a great question, Elena. Our Spanish website for right now is basically geared toward education. So what we wanted to do first is ensure that we could educate our Hispanic clients and participants. So our Hispanic side 
exactly mirrors the information that we have in our English side. And at times it has some of the crucial elements that you need to have in there. So that's the first part of the journey. So in education, it's a complete mirror of what we have. So the Spanish language portion of the website is an identical copy, if you will, or an identical <clears throat> excuse me, version of the English language content, just that it's in Spanish? When it comes to education, right? Because when, when you look at, you know, when you think about retirement and when you think about the websites, there are two things that we usually aim to do in both, you know, and that also is something that we do in some of the other uh, customer contact points that they tell us. Well, the first thing is education for sure. So the education side of the website is exactly the same. Now, when you want to do something with us, if you're a client of the company and you want to be able to find out more information about your account in particular, then you are sent to our English site. We are working on trying to translate that as well, but in terms of detailed information about your accounts, then from the Spanish side, you go and you are transferred directly to our English side. Now, we're working on doing that translation as well, Elena, but it's not quite ready yet. Does that make sense? Yes, you've, you've focused on the educational part of the information to start the Spanish language pages and are working on adding more content, if I think I, I understood correctly. Correct. That's correct. And we did it that way, Elena, because what we find ourselves is that to be able to talk to anybody about retirement and why it's important to take action and start saving, it starts with a ton of education. Once you break that, once you are able to convince a client that it's important that even if you are 30 years away from retirement, that you have to think about it, education is what does that. If you don't break that barrier, there is no conversation because you will never be able to have the client even think about retirement. For the reason education is, is such an empowering event and is what guides the next set of decisions for our clients and participants. How long ago did you launch these Spanish language initiatives, Romano? We, this, the initiative we launched in May of 2009, and our latest, which is the website, the educational website, we launched in May of 2010. So you're just really getting the Spanish language website off the ground, if you will. Correct, correct. One of the things that I've been hearing lately from marketing experts who have Spanish language websites is that they're seeing a lot of their customers in the United States are actually going to the English language pages and that most of the traffic to their Spanish language pages is coming from outside the country. Do you expect that there is going to be some of that in your case since the information you have is so very specific to the U.S. market? It's early days. It's early days. We uh, So it's, it's hard to tell because it's early for us. Um, what I can say, Elena, is that w when I think about more than just the web, right, because our Hispanic clients or participants, just like our non-Hispanics, have many ways to have a conversation with us. It could be via the web. It could be calling into the call centers. It could be meeting with participants, our clients, when we are on campus. And when I look at all of that, Elena, over the past 12 months, again, this is since May of 2009, we touch over 10,000 Spanish clients, which is a very large number for us. So it does tell me, Elena, that I believe that either to the website or any of the other channels, our Hispanic clients are talking to us, and they want to talk to us about what we have to offer to them in particular. 10,000 for us is a big number. Do you notice a difference 
When you look at the, your Hispanic customer base, do you see a difference by segment, meaning younger versus older or men versus women, acculturated versus less acculturated, language preference, by any segmentation, are there ways for you to subdivide those customers beyond just Hispanic or non-Hispanic? Elena, the answer is yes, but given that we just launched it, we are developing all the infrastructure to be able to do that. I mean, for right now, when you look at the 10,000 touches, uh, you know, it, they, they behave exactly at times uh, as our non-Hispanics, and a lot depends on of where you are in the journey, meaning are you just beginning your working career? Are you in the middle? Are you toward retirement? So, so as of right now, based on the limited data we have, but we will have that data in the future. So in our next podcast, I'll be glad to share that with you, our listeners, as well. Oh, I'm sure they will be looking forward to hearing about your findings. Romano, I know that you're still taking baby steps and that you've gotten a lot done in a short time. In a year, you've implemented a lot of efforts to reach out to this particular segment of your market, which is still only 5% of your customer base, so you're putting a lot of effort behind that. Um, In what ways are you reaching out to them to let them know that these channels are available to them, that they can speak to somebody in Spanish on the phone, or that there is a consultant available for them in the field that they can speak with in Spanish and and the website and so forth? It's an excellent question, Elena, and there are a number of ways that we are doing that. Um, Number one, um, for sure, when you contact our call center, which is, is one place, um, where we have a lot of our clients contact us when they need something is out there and it does tell you to use that option. So immediately when a participant is able to look at that option, they know and understand that we are offering that. Um, then we also, as you remember, we have our 15,000 institutions that we serve and, and as we go out to where they are, we have these seminars that we have put in place working with the administrators, meaning our clients that are the head of HR of the institution, for instance, and we work with them, and we invite we invite participants. And I tell you, Elena, every time we do it, we have full rooms of uh, participants that are Hispanics. Uh, our advertising is beginning to do that. And then we also work with different associations that are very important to tell the message. Uh, for instance, we work with the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities. Um, we work with the Association of Hispanic Healthcare Executives. We also work with the National Forum on Latino Healthcare Executives and then our press releases. It's just a very humble beginning but that's how we're reaching our um, Hispanic clients. And when you talk about advertising, are you relying on online forums, channels, to promote your online channel? In other words, are you using online media to promote your new website, or are you doing it through broadcast media? What specific channels are you relying on all of the above, Elena, all of the above. We're relying on all of those. And I'm relying on conversations like today's <laughs> to be able to tell the story. But we are, our plan to be able to communicate the message includes all of the above. Now, in terms of the actual conversation, if you will, or the substantive aspect of the conversation, when you're sitting down with a prospect, with a Hispanic that says, okay, you've got my attention, I'm interested, this is obviously something that I need to pay attention to. How do you make the argument that takes them into the area of exploring a retirement plan and that switches their priorities from what you're seeing right now from that 54% that you talked about earlier? Such a great question, Elena. Let me share a few real stories of meetings that we have had to be able to illustrate the point. Um, in one case, 
um, one of our participants or clients, we were sitting uh, at a university, and, and we had well, this one-on-one, we call it, which is very important, right? And Hispanics love that. They, they need the one-on-one counseling session. Um, so in that session, uh, she found that the university had been putting money into her account for years and that she had accrued $20,000. She did not know, even though we sent quarterly statements and we have all the information that the client needed, and she just broke down in tears of joy. She was so excited. Uh, She, at that point, didn't know how far she was from retirement, so at that plan, our consultant was able to, using the balance of the account, using the future accumulations to have a very engaging conversation about this is where you are, and if you want to retire here, you need to put a few more dollars into the plan. So in this case, the participant didn't even know that the University of Employer was putting money aside, and that was so terrific. Another situation, uh, we sat down with this particular uh, participant, and uh, she thought, by doing you know her thinking, that she at least had another 10 years to work before retirement. And after our conversation, our one-on-one, uh, we found that a small increase to the actual savings that she was putting every month would allow her to retire in two years, not 10, two, and have enough income to cover her needs, which was another terrific event, one of those moments of truth when you are using our advice and our numbers to be able to say it. And that's the way how we are convincing our clients to look at what they have and see how they have to make changes to the plan going forward. Do you have to save a bit more if you want to be able to get where you need to go? And this one thing, if I were to just say it for you, Elena, and our listeners, is the personal touch what makes all the difference. It's good that you go into the website and you read and you get the educational material, and we use that so that you are encouraged to come and talk to us. It's it's good that you can read about retirement, but it's not only when it touches you. It's like experience. You know how there is this saying that goes that experience is a light that doesn't burn you until it touches you. When it touches you, Elena, is when it burns. Is when we have the personal one-on-ones and we look at the situation for that particular client where we talk about all of the actions that need to be taken. If, if we can have that conversation, I'm sure that you can take action on your retirement. But we need to be able to schedule that conversation. You know, it's, it's, so, it's so like Hispanics, Elena. It's so personal. It's very personal. And that's how we're approaching our effort. And how how much of a challenge is it to get to that conversation that you're talking about? You're saying once you get to that point, everything is easier. But it sounds like getting to that initial conversation is a bit of a it's challenge. A big, it's a big challenge, Elena, because, well, first, you know, times are hard. And at times when that happens, uh, it's difficult to do that. But what we're doing is that we're trying at least to show very simplistically. Think, think about the dream. Think about the future. So, for instance, uh, we have, you know, a couple of tools. One that I love, we call it Logre Un Mejor Retiro, Ahorrando Más Hoy. You have to be able to achieve a better returning. And what it does, Lena, is it's like a little rule that says, look, Say that you have an X amount of years to retirement, and I'll pick a number. You know, you pick, say that you're returning in 10 years, 10 años. Then we give you examples of, well, if you are 10 years away and you are putting out $25 a month, look, if you are nothing on that money, you can get $3,000. But if you earn 6%, that will get you 4097 And then, Elena, we go, well, suppose that you have 30 years 
and you can save $25 a month. You know what that means to all of you listeners out there, all of these young Hispanics that I hope are listening to us. If you have 30 years, 3-0, to retire, and you just put $25 a month at a 6% rate, that's a rendimiento, that's $25,000. So putting the numbers and showing the value of the dream, how time, how time is with you is how we're beginning to convince some of the younger clients that at this point don't see a need. When you put those numbers, Elena, that keeps them thinking. Oftentimes I hear that many Hispanic households, and I'm generalizing, of course, because it's such a diverse market, but that in many Latino households, there is a multi-generational household so that there's maybe the the parents, the children, the grandparents, the extended family, Mm -hmm. and that the decision-making process is shared, oftentimes driven by the mother, but with the help of the rest of the family members. Mm -hmm. Is that similar? This is such a different product. This is such a different concept. It requires a lot of education and this personal contact that you're talking about. How are you seeing the decision-making process in, in your case? Elena, what we're seeing is exactly what you said. There is usually not one decision maker, but many. So what ends up happening many times is that before we said that one-on-one consultation, we asked, and we said, if you would like to bring any other member of your family, please come and join. For sure, spouses usually come together, but what's happening is that we see other family members that are coming to see this, or what would happen in other scenarios that you do sit with somebody one-on-one, and they didn't know what they were going to get. And once they see the power of that, they said, can I come back and bring my tío? Can I come back and bring mi abuela or mi abuelo? And we said, absolutely. Why don't you take what you got and come back and see us? But you are so right on. That's exactly what we see happening. It's not one person only making the decision. Usually it's a family affair, as you know. It's like buying a car of a house, right? Those are big deals, and they are all the family members that have that. And when that happens, it's so important because we, we need to start creating, at the end of the day, you know, that person in the household that is a role model that will help, you know, the family, ¿verdad? Think about retirement altogether and think about what is social security going to provide for us and what is real estate going to provide for us and what are the children, if any, going to help mamá and papá. So we are trying to ensure that when the family or the members come out, we start creating that seed to be able to have that in the household. What would you say, Romano, is the main reason that there is such a different attitude toward retirement and retirement saving in the customer base that you're observing? Can you Have you looked into that? Did you have a, any kind of a guess or an answer as to why there is such a different attitude? Elena, it's early days for us, but, but we're beginning you know, to understand what that's about. The key... So far, we have several hypotheses, but the first one for sure is the power of education and telling people what this is. You know, financial services is, has been such a complex area. The, just the terms, Elena, for our Hispanic Latinos are hard to understand. I, I think that, you know, we, we weren't focusing on the educational side of it, explaining the power of what, you know, the, the, the power of time and the power of time can help you out. So they didn't have as much knowledge. Some of the products, Elena, are products that our um, clients didn't know what it means. An annuity? Like, what is that? So I think it's that lack of understanding for what is returning, and more importantly, how do you go about returning? How do you start? Because it's a very disciplined process. We as a company, TIA Craft, that's what we do. We have a disciplined approach to retirement that starts when you first start working. Asking the quick questions, doing all the math, the lack of all of that, Elena, is one of the hypotheses that we have, and we are seeing it. When you're actually able to explain how this could work, how saving the $25 a month can mean X number of dollars in 10, 15, 20 years, and then explaining, okay, once you have this money 
and you're ready to retire, how do you actually touch the money? That, the power of having that conversation is something that I don't think we have focused on uh, as an industry. But now that we're doing it, we're beginning to see excellent results. Let's talk a little bit about that, if we could. When sure. you When you talk about these clients, these participants, as you call them, what are the options that are available to them? And I imagine that there are differences depending on the, their career stage, whether they're starting out or mid-career or nearing retirement. But can you summarize for us in a nutshell, what are the options that are available to them? Correct. No, absolutely. Glad to do that. So the first thing is, you know, our clients or participants, they work for one of our institutional clients. And each client has a number of options. What I would recommend our listeners is that the first thing that you need to do to understand your options is understand what are the plan offerings that your employer provides, University of Texas, University of Kentucky, any of them, because at times what will happen is that that plan will determine what the different options are. So once you do that, that the first step, step number one is understanding what the plan provides, then you can start taking action, which is what we are about, is taking action of the options. Usually a plan will be one where uh, the employer will put some money aside for your retirement, and then you have the ability to put more money on your side. So the first option that you have to consider is how much more can I put that is additional to what my employer is providing to see your savings grow. That's so important as an option. There are many people that decide not to do anything, but they only will count with that particular contribution from the employer. Uh, Once you pick that option, it's step number one, because that will tell you how much money between you and your employer are actually putting aside. Then it comes option number two. How do you invest that money? What do you do with that? Those $50 a month between you and the employer, 100 what happens to that? And the employer usually picks a number of options, mutual funds or stocks, whatever the options are that we provide and that the employer agrees to. So that's the second decision to make. What do I do with this money every month? And how do we invest it? Once you make that second decision or option, then you start seeing your account growth, hopefully. And then there is a third decision after a while, which is, okay, as the world changes, and we have seen a lot of that, should I do something with that bucket of money that you have in your account? Should you change the way how the funds are, we call, allocated between either equities or fixed investments or real estate? And then you have many options there once you have it. And then the last option of them all, which is when you are ready to retire, how do I start taking my money? Because we see that many people after retirement could live 10, 15, 20 years. So summarizing it, because it's complex, the first step, step number one in terms of options is be sure that you understand what is provided by your employer. And that applies if you are uh, working with our company as the provider of plans or any company. Once you find that out, step number two is understand what, what else out of your own pocket can you put in that monthly bucket to start saving. After you do that, then in step three, you've got to decide what to do with that monthly money, how to allocate it. And that's where, for instance, we come in. That's where we can help. And retirement companies like us can help you understand what to do. And then on a regular basis, like going to a doctor, you've got to get checkpoints. How well are we doing? Do you have to make any changes to the money that you have? And then the last one, if you're ready to retire, what are my options? What do I do with the money? Do I... Uh, take the whole money out at once? Um, do I have what we call an annuity, which is a way to kind of warranty income? So it, it's complex, but you can do it if you take the discipline to do it. I know it's a long answer, Elena, but it's just such an important question. I'm so glad you asked it. 
And of course, there are going to be people that are going to be hesitant. And one of the questions that I can just imagine are going through a lot of people's minds is, well, what's in it for you, TIA Craft? Why are you doing this? Why are you so interested in my retirement? How do you make your money? What would you say right. to the question? Well, usually what we say is that, you know, we are out there with our non-commissioned uh, consultants. Uh, as you know, we are a non-profit and the consultants that we have out there are non-commissioned. We said the consultants, where they're helping you. The question that we get the most, Lena, is, well, is, is this consultant going to be able to help me? in a way that is not biased toward anything. And we said, absolutely, uh, we are non-commissioned. And, and because of that, you know, we have one piece of data, I'll call it, that I didn't share with you earlier. But because of that, uh, we were recently awarded uh, this great thing that says that we are, you know, one of those posts that are done in financial services right now, one of the most trusted brands out there, which when we tell our clients, our participants, that fact, it it puts them at ease. It puts them at ease because it's about you and helping you make those decisions. And then we we are always, you know, very clear on disclosing, you know, all of the fees and how the business business works and the business operates. But when we talk about non-commissioned advisors, when we talk about being up there, the most trusted brands that usually put things at ease, and and it makes a big difference with our clients. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would, Romano. How do you get to be number 90 out of the Fortune 500 as a nonprofit? How do you advise your participants through non-commissioned consultants and still make money? Because obviously you're a very large organization and you are, even though you're a nonprofit, you are still having to make a profit to keep the business alive. What is the source of your income? Right, you know, so so we have, you know, we manage over four hundred billion dollars of assets, uh, and as you do that, you know, that's a very important source of the income that we make. But what we tell participants is that our participants owe the company, by the way. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, you do have to charge for services, correct? But we take that. We invest it because the company belongs to our participants, and some of those investments are required because we need to have great websites. We have to have people to serve our participants, and we have to be able to ensure that the customer experience is the best. And when we approach it that way, which is exactly how we are, is when it makes perfect sense. So even though we're number 90, yeah, we are because we are large. We have been out there for a while. And the fees that we gather go back to our participants and go back to ensuring that the experience and the tools that we provide and the people, the consultants that are out there every day are able to serve in the best way we can. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And also, uh, if I understand correctly, because you are selling financial services, there is government oversight involved. Is that right? Correct. That's correct. Yeah, there are a number of agencies that will be very large now that, you know, provide the oversight for us. Absolutely. That's correct. And that means, of course, that what you say in terms of the information that you provide to your participants, whether it's in person or through printed materials or online, is all government regulated, correct? Correct, correct. There are there are a number of there is FINRA, there is the SEC, there are the you know every state has insurance agencies that regulate what we do. So you have to be sure that you are complying sometimes by a state. If the product is an annuity, for instance, like an insurance product, you have to be able to ensure that you are meeting all the regulations and that you have the right licensing because in this business, it's very important to ensure that whoever you're talking to has the right licenses. So our consultants, either on the phone or in the field, have to have the appropriate type of licenses that ensure that they have the training and the background to advise you properly. 
So that's by state if you're dealing with insurance products. So absolutely, all the way, we are like any other company out there. It's just that we're owned by our participants, and we're there to do the right thing. And, of course, the oversight, I assume, gives your participants a certain sense of comfort or safety, especially in this economic climate where there have been so many companies uh, caught with uh, wrongdoing uh, in in the last few years. Is, is that something that helps them That's feel? That's correct. <laughs> absolutely, and absolutely. And there is one more thing, Elena, I have to say. You know, as an insurance company, there are agencies that give you rating on your ability to pay what you owe. And we have, I don't have them with me, but more than glad to say them, but, you know, you, listeners, you can go to our website and see it, but we have highest ratings given by most agencies out there, which also puts our clients at ease. It's very important. Well, in this oversight is so strict that, for example, for today's interview, we had to agree in writing that we wouldn't be making any edits to the recording. Romano, in terms of suggestions or tips that our audience can take away, whether it's uh, some of your participants who are listening to our conversation today or maybe even just regular folks who might not be uh, TIAA-CREF participants but who nonetheless want to save money for their and their family's retirement. What three suggestions would you share with them in terms of how to go about retiring in good time, let's say? It's like only one, and it may have a couple of branches into it, but it's very simple to all of our listeners out there. Please do not spend more than you make. Please do not spend more than you make. It's the one way how, number one, if you do it, you're going to be in debt, and you're going to be retiring with a lot of debt, which is a big issue for us as Americans. If you do that, you are not going to have enough money to put away for retirement. So it's only one thing. Do not spend more than you make. Understand what you make. And as you do that, put a budget in place. I, I, you know, I tell my girls, the, the, the one piece of advice said, do not overspend. And the way to do that is put a budget in place and remember to save a little bit of money for yourself and for your retirement. If you have a budget and you have an item for saving, that's a good tool not to overspend. So when you overspend, it ruins your financial life. It puts you in debt. Sometimes people are retiring with a ton of debt. It doesn't allow you to save. So it's very simple. And that's my one piece of advice. Very simple, but I think it can carry all of you very far. In terms of our listeners who want to learn from your experience in reaching out to Hispanic customers, what advice would you give them if they want to gain a better understanding and be more effective in reaching out to Hispanic customers? Make it simple. It's a very complex, in the industry that we're in, it's a very complex. If you can use education to make it simple, and understand the power of saving and what time does, I think that will make a large difference. But it has to be very simple. Okay, so two simple messages. One is make sure that you don't spend more than you earn. And if you're trying to reach out to Hispanic consumers, make sure that you have a simple message. Is that right? That's correct, Elena. Thank you, Romano, for joining us from Austin, Texas. Elena, it has been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time and looking forward to our next uh, next podcast. Absolutely. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Romano Riquetta, who is Senior Vice President of Participant Services at TIAA-CREF, the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association College Retirement Equities Fund. Today we discussed his company's Spanish language initiative to reach U.S. United States Latinos. 
with a message for secure retirement. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.